0: Please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, and these brothers have some Bibles, they're going to make their way toward the back, so if you need a Bible, get their attention, they'll get one of those to you, and you can just open it up where it's marked, it is marked for you at Philippians 3, so you won't have to fumble around to find that. We will return to the series that we've been engaged in for several months on the Sermon on the Mount next Sunday. But last week we had a Christmas-themed message, and today, because we are beginning the new year this coming week, uh, we have a message devoted to that theme, and then Sermon on the Mount will continue next week. Philippians 3. Many of us are familiar with the acronym TMI for too much information. It's usually mentioned when someone is telling a story with personal details that are probably left unsaid. Do you know I'm convinced that we suffer from TMI, too much information of another sort, simply being overwhelmed by the amount of data that we have available to us in our day. And that has some unintended negative effects. I have a book, the title is Faster, The Acceleration of Just About Everything. And the title provides the premise of the book that everything including the accumulation of information happens at an accelerated speed the New York Times review of that book said this what we lose as just about everything accelerates is the chance to reflect to analyze and ultimately to come up with moral judgments unfortunately deep concentrated thought isn't as fast as an electron tunneling through silicon it takes time for the patterns of neural firing to shift, connect, and interact to form whole new patterns in our minds. Try to shorten that time, and you very quickly become distracted. We tend to think that the more information, the better. But that information is only as good as our capability to process it. And the rate of information is quickly outpassing our reflective capacity. We not only have the problem of too much information, we also face the issue of too many choices. I've mentioned in the past my aversion to shopping, shopping of any kind. Now that's due in no small measure to how many choices there are in any store, whether it's a grocery store, a department store, electronics, or whatever it is. All of them have a dizzying array of selections for the very same product line. The problem of too many choices can cause some of us to just go ahead and short-circuit the whole process. So for me, I try to avoid the choices by whittling them down fast. And this makes for some somewhat unusual Christmas shopping habits. The way it works in our home is Kim and I do a tag team on the girls' gifts. We both have a part to play. She works out with them what they want, she gets it, and I pay for it. This then in turn leaves me with one task, to shop for Kim. Now, I wanted to be responsible and ensure that I had her stuff in plenty of time. So on Wednesday, (laughs) also known as Christmas Eve, I got started. I went to a mall that I don't think will be long for this world, since it appears almost no one goes there. But there is a department store there that has everything. I went with my usual objective, whittling down the choices fast and get done as quickly as possible. So I go there, and from the store, I shoot a quick text to Laney and Annie. Can you think of any clothes items or jewelry or anything else for your mother? Earrings is the reply. I happen to be near the jewelry section. As I look at a myriad of choices, I text back. Small? Hoops? And the reply is, small ones or dangly ones. And immediately my eyes go to a pair of earrings that are not only small, they're dangly. And within five minutes, small dangly earrings have been purchased. I then walk through the women's clothing section of the store for a few minutes and I see the blouses and the coordinates and other stuff and I find myself thinking, with all of them, Kim would look good in that. Now, I should pause to say here, it's really easy to buy clothes for someone who looks good in anything. I am out of the doghouse now. (laughs) And I pick up a, a sweater, I text the girls regarding size, and within 10 minutes, a sweater is purchased. As I'm buying it, I ask the cashier, can you wrap this? Her answer is no. But the 4-H Club has a booth in the mall. And they're wrapping gifts in exchange for donations. Now you know this is a different kind of mall when the 4-H Club has a booth in it. But I find the 4-H booth. I give a generous donation. They wrap the sweater and earrings beautifully. And within an hour, mission accomplished. Now some of us address the problem of too many choices by narrowing them down and quickly. We're beset by too much information and too many choices. And here's the real problem with all of that. Too much information and too many choices results very often in too little focus. Too much information, too many choices, and that results very often in too little focus. We have a hard time sorting out what's important and what's not. What I should spend my time and energies and money on and what I should not. And this is a problem for all of us, but it's a particular problem for Christians because, dear Christian friend, we are called to be focused on a goal and to expend our energies in pursuit of it. I've asked you to turn to Philippians 3. The last part of verse 12 says this, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And then verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, the one who wrote those words, Paul, had a particular goal. And the question is, for what was it that he strove in his life and toward which he pressed, as he says in this passage? On what was it that he was focused? The answer is to be like Jesus Christ and to be like Jesus Christ. Whatever it takes. In fact, verse 10 of Philippians 3 says that being like Christ may mean suffering or even death, but the goal is to be like him. The Bible teaches that our ultimate destination is that we will be like him. Verse 21 of Philippians 3 says that Jesus will one day transform our frail bodies so that we'll have a glorified, incorruptible body like he does. The body states it this way elsewhere in Romans chapter 8. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. The question then is, what is that purpose? And the next verse tells us, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose and that is to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And this goal will be, the Bible teaches, will be achieved in the future. So the Bible says in 1 John 3, we shall be like him. And for those of us who have this as our ultimate goal, it should make a profound difference in the here and now. Because the next verse after that one that's on the screen says this, we shall be like him. Everyone who has this hope, when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not as we use it, I I wish this would happen, but rather it's a confident expectation. And so everyone who has this confident expectation in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so John in 1 John 3 is saying, we're going to be like Jesus someday. And because that is our desire, because that's our goal, our passion, our focus, we strive to progress in that every single day in the here and now. It's to be our goal as it was Paul's to be like Christ in our character, to think as he thinks, to talk as he talks, to act as he acts. This is the reason that in the words of verse 12, Christ took hold of us and for which God has called us, according to verse 14, to be like Jesus. And friends, this is what we mean then when in our Bible studies, in our Christian conversations, in church all the time, we say that we live to bring glory to God. Because the glory of God means the display of his character. Think like he thinks, talk like he talks, act like he acts, care about what he cares about. So the Bible says this, we reflect the Lord's glory, being transformed into the likeness, into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. So you all see that we have a goal. The goal is to be like Jesus. That goal will be achieved for those who have a relationship with God through Jesus. It will be achieved in the future when we stand before him, when we are in heaven, but in the here and now that should have an effect on us as we pursue becoming more and more like Jesus. That's what the Bible means when it says we live to bring glory to him. We live to display his character. To display the character of Jesus in our lives. And so we're going to see that for 2015 from Philippians chapter 3. Let's bow together and ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, we thank you for this sacred time to be able to gather as your people. And to look forward to now another year in which we need your grace to help us advance in Christ's likeness. Help us to see from your word today what it means to pursue the glory of God by becoming more and more like God the Son. And help us to commit today to doing those things necessary in order to prioritize this most important task for which you have made us and for which you are remaking us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Attainment of our goal on which we're to be focused, that is to be like Christ, Friends, it does not just happen. Rather, it takes effort. It takes determination. And that's why verses 12 and 14 of Philippians 3 say, Press on. It's the same word in verses 12 and 14 that's translated press on as the word translated persecuting in verse 6. So in the first part of Philippians 3, Paul, who wrote it, is giving his resume and he's talking about his past, and he's saying that there's at one time in verse 6, I was persecuting the church. Same word that's translated press on in verses 12 and 14, but the underlying motivation is dramatically different between verse 6 and verses 12 and 14. In verse 6, it's zeal for self-righteousness. But in verses 12 through 14, it's the zeal of a man who's exulting in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And consequently, he's desiring to be all that he can be and all that he was made to be. In the words of verse 12, taking hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. For the Christian, each day presents another opportunity to advance in becoming like Jesus. And these opportunities, friends, include all of the stuff of life that you and I will face on any given day, every bit of it, all of it, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of them are means whereby I can grow in Christ-like character. So that's the goal. But how do we achieve it? And on the back of your program, we have an outline for you. As we supply an outline each week, I encourage you to take a look at that. And I want you to note first, in order to achieve this goal of Christlikeness, likeness the first thing we need is an accurate self-image in the present. We need an accurate self-image in the present. In order to continue moving toward your goal, you need to understand that you're not there yet. So in order for me to understand that I need to keep moving forward, I need to understand the fact that I've not already arrived. And that's why verse 12 says this. Not that I've already obtained all this, Or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on. Paul had come to Christ about 30 years before composing this letter. So at the time he wrote this letter to a church in a city called Philippi, he had been a Christian for 30 years. He had won many spiritual battles in that time. He had grown much in those years, but he candidly confessed that he had not arrived. He says, in effect, I still have room to grow in spiritual maturity. Now, friends, I ask you, is it safe to say that if the great apostle had growing to do, then we do as well? If he pursued spiritual growth into Christ's likeness with energetic zeal, don't we need to do the same? One reason that we don't do that. One reason that we don't press on and put our energies and determination into pursuing Christ's likeness day after day and week after week and year after year is because we're satisfied with good enough. Paul understood that the standard of measurement, now hear this, is not what I was, but rather what I was designed to be. Many of us are satisfied with good enough because we're not what we were. But Paul says, it's not enough for me to not just be what I was in the past, but rather I need to become what I was made for and what it is that Christ is remaking me for. So although we've grown today from what we were in the past, none of us are where we should want to be. It's a requirement for continual spiritual growth that we have an ever-deepening understanding of what Christ is like and how far we still fall short. And if we'll do that, we will not fall into the good enough trap. You know, Paul had this kind of progressive understanding of the gap that existed between where he was and what Christ is like. And we see this throughout the New Testament. Because if you lay out the letters that Paul wrote in chronological order, you find him making statements about himself, his own spiritual status. And you find that he has an increasing awareness of the gap that exists between Christ's character and his character. One of his early letters is 1 Corinthians. And early on he said this about himself, I am the least of the apostles. Now that's still fairly select company. Humble, I'm the least of the apostles. But nevertheless, there are only a handful of apostles. I'm the least among those. But then as time goes on, we find him saying in Ephesians chapter 3, not just I am the least of the apostles, but I am the least of all God's people. As he continues to grow and mature, he also continues to see his own sinfulness in a more acute way. And then as you go on still further, as was read in our scripture reading today from 1 Timothy chapter 1, he's not only the least of the apostles and the least of all God's people, he says of himself, I am the worst of sinners an ever increasing awareness of the holiness of Christ and his own sinfulness that drove him to pursue Christ likeness to press on if we are going to attain our goal of being like Christ we need an accurate self image in the present i say secondly in your outline we need a singular goal for the future an accurate self image in the present and a singular goal for the future. If we're going to have this singular goal moving forward into the future, it means a couple of things. The first I have in your outline is this it requires forgetting the past. Forgetting the past. Verse thirteen says, forgetting what is behind. Paul had much to put in the past. And he had to put it in the past in order for him to advance in the future. He persecuted the church and he considered Jesus to be a false Messiah. Paul's sinful, prideful past could have been spiritually debilitating to him, but it was not. And it was not because he did what all of us must do come to God in Jesus Christ and ask Him to forgive. Here's what the Bible says that God does when we do that we each have a past. We bring that past to God and we ask him to forgive. And then here's what the Bible says. I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Hear this, friends. We must deal with our past or it will deal with us. Our past has the ability to become our present unless it's taken care of by taking it to God. Our confession and God's forgiveness is the only sure way to put the past in the past and to keep it there. And unless we get rid of it, it will get rid of us. Our past can, and it has for many, become a haunting memory that saps our strength, dogs our footsteps, and handicaps our spiritual lives. I do not want a show of hands. I have to make that very clear. I do not want a show of hands because I said that in a sermon recently. And Then after I mentioned what I mentioned, then some people raised their hands. So don't raise your hands. But I wonder how many people sitting in this room are struggling with their past. Struggling with in the past what you have done and or struggling from the past with regard to what has been done. You and in both cases, the past must be dealt with. If it is not, if it is not your own guilt and also all of the hurt that has been caused by the sin of others, if not all of that is brought to the foot of the cross, it will debilitate you and keep you from moving forward. And so, I ask you, have you dealt with your past? Or is it still a bitter memory, annoying pain in your soul? You must get rid of it, not merely psychologically, but spiritually through confession and correction. And the consequences of failing to do so are disastrous indeed. In Psalm 32, we're going to look at some passages from that on the screen in just a moment. But in Psalm 32, we have the testimony of King David. Many of you know the story of King David, how he sinned grievously against the Lord. He was king and representative of God before the people, and yet he committed adultery with a woman. And to cover up his sin, he had her husband killed. Great sin. He tried to hide that sin for a long time before he was finally confronted regarding that sin by the prophet Nathan. Psalm number 51 records David's heartfelt confession, pouring out his heart to the Lord for the sin that he had committed. And Psalm 32, although comes before Psalm 51, was actually written after Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is his confession. Psalm 32 gives us his testimony about the time that he was trying to hide that, failing to deal with it, and he had his past burdening him and carrying carrying it around with him. And here's what he says in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Now notice that's verses 1 and 2. That's how the psalm begins, with this blessing that he's experiencing when he writes this. But then he tells us why it is that he's experiencing this blessing of the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin the Lord does not count against him. The next verse says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. So this is me, David, carrying this around. This is how it had effects on me. It had physical effects on me. I'm absolutely convinced from years of counseling people that many of the problems that we experience in the present are because of failure and refusal to deal with issues from the past. He says this, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now friends, it is not possible for God to forget, literally forget anything. He's an omniscient God. So when the Bible says he will remember them no more, it's a commitment on the part of an omniscient, all-knowing God that he will not focus in his dealings with you upon those things that have been forgiven. Likewise for you. It's impossible for some things that have happened to us or some things that we have done to be completely forgotten. There will be times where there will be memory triggers. You will hear a song. You will be at a place. You will have a scent that will remind you of things that have happened. But you make a commitment like God makes to you. God commits, not that I won't have it in my memory bank. It's impossible for God not to have that. But I won't focus upon that. And likewise for you. When, not if, that comes to mind, you put it away immediately and you confess the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for the sin you've committed and, for the, and, and thank him for the help that he's given with regard to the sin committed against you. Now this is so important that I want to stop here now. I want us to bow together. and We're going to go before the Lord. And I want to encourage every person here to take a few moments to do business with our God to take the burden, the thing or things that you have been carrying around to God right now. And before we enter 2015, you put those at the foot of the cross. And you ask for the covering of the blood of Jesus. And for those of you who have done that, and God has graciously redeemed from your past whatever the past may have held for you. Let's take this time to thank God for his mercy upon us. Let's bow together. Oh, Father In this fallen world, in which we play an active part, we sin and are sinned against in so very many ways. In a group this size, there are just too many ways to even imagine that we could have sinned and been sinned against. You know every last one of them. You know every detail. In every past that is represented here. And though you are not the author of sin. And though you tempt no one to sin. The truth is you use every circumstance that you allow in our lives. Including sin. In order to teach us. To hone us. To cause us to see your mercy and experience it. To ultimately become more like Christ. And so Lord I pray in this sacred moment. That there are hearts that are crying out to you with an understanding that in those moments in the past, whatever they were, our God was not absent. and That you are the God who redeems all things, and that you are redeeming every life here, if we but desire that. Lord, I pray that, that there are some who are, for the first time perhaps, putting the past in the past, asking for forgiveness for things that they have done, things that they thought were too enormous in order for you to forgive We thank you for the testimony of our brother Paul, persecuting the church, seeing himself as the worst of sinners, but experiencing the blessedness of the one who's forgiven in Christ. So I pray that brothers and sisters are doing that. There may be some here who have never entered into a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. I pray that they are coming to the cross for the very first time and that you will cleanse them with the blood of Jesus and give them the righteousness that they cannot attain, but that Jesus has attained. And then for those of us that you have forgiven, and you forgive daily as we come to you and we repair to the cross, oh Lord, we thank you profoundly. We thank you for the difference that Jesus has made. We thank you for the burdens that are lifted at Calvary. I pray, Lord God, that 2015 would be the year that some of your people finally leave their baggage at the cross so that they can move forward in pursuit of your glory, becoming gloriously transformed into the image of Christ. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Paul had to put his sin in the past. You have to put your sin in the past. The sin you've committed, that which has been committed against you. But he also had to put his accomplishments in the past as well. Spiritual victories yesterday would not suffice for today. So if he's going to move forward, he's not going to rest on his laurels. He does not believe good enough. He has a goal. It's to become like Christ. And as long as I am not completely like Christ, then I have more to attain. That was his view. So having a singular goal for the future requires, as I said in your outline, forgetting the past. But now secondly, it requires looking ahead. It requires forgetting the past, but it also requires looking ahead. Again, the end of verse 13. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. The words toward the goal come from a Greek word, from which we get our word scope, as in telescope. Or let's scope out this territory, we might say. It means that on which I fix my gaze, that at which I'm looking. And so Paul says that I, I press on toward that which I am looking, toward that on which I have fixed my gaze, Did you know, friends, that you always move in the direction of your vision, of what it is you're looking at? That's why texting and driving is bad, and that's a confession. When I was 16, I had my first job, and I delivered auto parts in a pickup truck to auto repair facilities. I was out on a delivery one day on an entry ramp to the freeway, one of those that kind of turns around, and I looked down to tune the radio. And When I looked up, there were weeds going down in front of me. I had veered off of the road. You go in the direction of your vision. On May 6, 1954, Roger, Roger Bannister became the first man in history to run a mile in less than four minutes. Within two months, John Landy eclipsed the record by 1.4 seconds. On August 7th of that year, the two met together for a historic race. As they moved into the last lap, Landy held the lead. It looked as if he would win, but as he neared the finish, he was taunted by the question, where is Bannister? As he turned to look, Bannister took the lead. Landy later told a Time magazine reporter, quote, if I hadn't looked back... I would have won. You go in the direction of your vision. So hear this. If you find yourself floundering in life, it's because you've lost sight of the goal. If you're not moving, it's because you have no vision. If you're moving in circles, it's because you have a vision for nothing in particular, and so you're on a treadmill that's taking you nowhere. If you have a goal, but that goal is anything other than becoming like Jesus Christ and living for his mission, then your goal is unworthy. If you're half-hearted in your commitment, it's because you're distracted by lesser things. Paul was fully committed because his eyes were fixed on the goal. And with his gaze locked onto the finish line, he says that he strains toward what is ahead. That word, Those words, straining toward, at the end of verse 13 are words used of a runner straining every nerve and muscle as he strives to cross the finish line. Have you ever met people who are constantly analyzing and trying to decide? You know, you ask them what they're doing, what's next for them. They say, I'm I'm thinking about a number of things. No particular focus. Uh, I've met people who I'll run into them places, Christian people that I've known over the years. Hey, where are you going to church? I'm, I'm looking for a church. Running to him a year later, hey, where are you going to church? I'm still looking for a church. It's because they have no focus. Paul was focused like a laser. So he could say at the beginning of verse 13 that I have but one goal, becoming like Christ is, he says, quote, the one thing I do. Knowing and pursuing the one thing that we're about is more important than circumstances within which we pursue that most important thing. Friends, we spend our energies thinking about and pursuing situations and circumstances when we should put our priority on the goal of being like Jesus, growing in that pursuit. And if we do, the circumstances, now hear this, the circumstances become the pavement or perhaps the bumps on the course of our race. But most of us are focused on the situation, the circumstances. What we should be focused on is the goal. So don't let the circumstances obscure the goal. You don't prioritize circumstances over the goal. You don't say, I'll pursue the goal when I finish school. I'll pursue the goal when I get a promotion. Someone at another church years ago said to my wife, you know, sometimes you just have to put your spiritual life on hold. That's a quote. Most of us would not say that, but in effect, many of us do that. If we're going to advance in the goal of becoming like Jesus Christ, we need an accurate self-image in the present, a singular goal for the future, and lastly in your outline. We need to move forward now. Move forward and do so now. And who's to move forward now? Not just the Pauls of the world, not just the pastors, not just the leadership team, not just the sort of Green Beret Christians out there, But rather all of us, notice verse 15, all of us then should take a view of such things. This is your goal and my goal. It's not just, as I say, for the Green Berets. Unless we take ease in the fact that we're still a work in progress. Now, let's be honest. How many times do you say this? Well, hey, I'm just a work in progress, man. Yeah, I know I haven't arrived yet, and I know I won't until I die. So, you know, here I am. Kind of take it or leave it. And lest we take ease in that fact and take a kind of laissez-faire passive approach to this most important issue of actively pursuing becoming like Jesus, verse 16 says, all of us are to move forward now. Verse 16 says, live up to what we have already attained. Now what does that mean when he says in verse 16, live up to what we've already attained? That is, don't sit in despair because you're not there. Live up to what you know and then seek to know more. It's trite but true that a journey of a thousand miles starts with the next step. Take the next spiritual step. You all have heard me say many times over the years that too many Christians are educated well beyond the level of their obedience. We think what we need is another Bible study. I'm all for Bible study. But the truth is what most of us need is to put into practice the Bible we already know. And that's what Paul is telling us to do here. And all of us are to do that. Now what about then the mission? that You've heard me talk about a lot if you've been around here. The mission of seeing Christ's church advance as this church grows and then this church is used of God to plant other churches both here and abroad. I thought you said, you may be thinking to yourself, that our purpose was that mission, and now you're saying it's Christ-likeness. Well, hear this. God gave the church for the purpose of teaching others to do the same thing. The church's collective mission to see as many people as possible come to Christ and to progress in looking like Christ. That's why we have the mission of church planting and missions. So what is my purpose? What is your purpose? It's to serve his mission while becoming like him. Or look like him and help others do so as well. Or know him and invite others to know him. Any way you want to phrase that, it is to pursue becoming like Jesus every moment of every day in the circumstances in which he has placed you. Now, I've not given you a take-home truth. I apologize for that. I always have that in the outline and I fail to put it in. So let me give it to you. The gospel motivates us to live for God's purpose. The gospel motivates us to live for God's purpose. The good news is God has rescued us. That's the good news, the gospel. He has rescued us. He saved us. He's delivered us from pursuing our own agenda in order to pursue his agenda. What is that agenda? To become like Christ. So the gospel motivates us to live for that purpose. Now, finally, I want to offer you some resolutions for this coming year. And I will try to remember to remind you about these resolutions in the coming year. The first is this, deal with the past. Deal with the past. Now, several years ago, I gave these resolutions. And I'm giving them again because in the intervening years, I've had opportunity to interact. It's clear to me that many of us have failed to deal with the past. In 2015, Lord, make it so. That we deal with the past. Secondly, delight in the present. If you belong to Jesus Christ, God is actively at work in your life. Transforming you into his image. So delight in the present, whatever the circumstances. And then thirdly, drive toward the future. Deal with the past. Delight in the present. And press on. Drive toward the future. This applies to every one of us, wherever you are. Whether you haven't dealt with your past, maybe you have. Then you need to have joy and delight in God's work in you in the present. And every last one of us needs to be committed to driving toward the future. Now, we're going to conclude in just a moment with a closing song. But before we do, I have two items that I want to take care of. One is to offer commendation to one of our church members. Commendation for over 25 years of service in dealing with the finances, not only of this church, but then of our parent church before us that that planted this church. Rich Carrico has served as our treasurer here for all 13 years of the existence of our church. Those of you that are newer may not have known that, but he has. And those of you that have been here for a while may not have known that for over 13 years, at our parent church, he served in that capacity. So for over 25 years, Rich has dealt with the finances of our parent church and now here. Now, why am I taking this time to commend him? Because this is the last Sunday with Rich as our treasurer. He's turning the reins over of that very important responsibility to a team that he's been training over a long period of time so that he can focus his ministry upon our men. He's leading our our men's ministry. So he's not getting out of ministry, far from it. He's simply changing the focus of his ministry. So you may not have known how long Rich has done that in terms of years, and I am sure very few of you know how many hours it has taken him every week in all of those years to handle the finances very ably for our church. When we have family meetings, as we do quarterly, it is not unusual for him to have the entire weekend tied up in preparing reports and a presentation for our church. And in the intervening months between those meetings, every week, the bills need to be paid, questions need to be answered, there are legal issues that arise, and Rich has been central in every one of those things through all of those years. So as we come to the end of 2014, and Rich comes to the end of his tenure, I'm pointing over there because Rich is in his hideout over there near the door. He's going to kill me for pointing him out. I'm not going to have him come up front. But most of you know Rich. And Rich, I want to say on behalf of the entire congregation, we thank God for you. We thank God for your faithfulness. Thank you for serving his people and his church in this capacity. And we want to say thank you together. And we have a sad note that we have uh, one of our longtime faithful families that is going to be relocating. And so I want the Dobertons to come forward, and I'll explain that to you. Well, this is the Doberton family. Many of you know them, but for those who don't, let me tell you who they are. This is uh, Phil on the on the end, and then I'll and, and Michelle, his wife Michelle, and then I'll go in order for the uh, children. This is Jordan and Jenna. And that's little Philip over there. And this is Mia. And then this is, this is Max, the, uh, the Dobertons. They have been with us for nine years and faithfully attended and faithfully served. And uh, they have been telling, the kids have in Sunday school for the last several weeks, uh, we're moving to Florida. So a few weeks ago, I saw Michelle. I said, hey, what's this I hear about you guys moving to Florida? And she, she filled me in. That they're moving to Fort Myers, and in fact, they're packing this uh, this Friday, and her first day at her new job there is a week from tomorrow. So they're going to be relocating there. Uh, uh, Michelle's uh, parents have a place there to which they're going to retire in a few years, so the family will be together down there. But uh, we are going to miss you guys dearly, and we want to thank you guys for being faithful members of our church. We want the church family to know that you're going to be leaving so that we can pray for you. And we wish you guys Godspeed as you do that. And we want to take a moment to pray for you now, okay? So let's bow together. Father, we, we thank you for the, uh, the hurt that we feel right now, the pain we feel right now, because it's pain born of love. We thank you for the love that you've allowed us to share with Phil and Michelle and with their dear family. The love that we share together is because of the love that we have together in Christ. We thank you that you've allowed us to serve together for these nine years. You've allowed them to grow and us to grow together. Lord, now as they depart, uh, we indeed feel pain, but we also uh, have the joy of anticipation. The joy of anticipation of what you're going to do in and through them in their new location. We ask your blessing upon them. We ask you to protect them, each one of them. We ask that they will continue to grow into Christ's likeness. We ask you to smooth their path for the steps that are ahead. And we ask you, Lord, to grant them joy in the journey. We thank you for the time that we've had. We thank you for the years that you're going to give each of us to serve you in our respective locations. And we look forward to the reunion that you're going to give us each together with you in the future. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. At the end of our closing song, we encourage our congregation to come around and say goodbye to uh, the Doberton family. Let's stand together.